The doors open. A hush falls upon the crowd. Stories will be saved from the grave. Welcome back to our beloved friends out there, but an especially heartfelt greeting to the strangers joining us today for the first time. We hope that you don't stay strangers for long once you hear today's episode on the theme of Red Flags, Part 2. We're going to jump right into it where we left off last episode. Here is Ed Farragut and his story, Coffee Machines and Other Mysteries. Take it away, Ed. Louise smiles at me from across her desk, and I immediately feel nervous. It isn't the smile that does it. It is a nice smile, friendly, unassuming, maybe even downright personable. That seems to be Louise in a nutshell. She reminds me of my favorite aunts, warm and relaxed. Even her clothes are homely, a fuzzy sweater and khakis. So why am I so nervous? Because she's about to ask that job interview question that I usually don't know how to answer. So, do you have any questions for me? I say usually because this time I have a question, an important one, and I try to ask it without sounding like a complete dick. Uh, yeah, just one. What do we do here? <laughs> Louise smiles again, and I don't push my luck. Day one. I sit in my car and practice saying hello in a pleasant manner. Louise gave me the job. It pays a dollar more an hour than my retail gig, which I didn't give proper notice to, so now I'm sitting in my car pleasantly saying hello to my former boss. He says, I just, I just want you to know this counts as a no-call, no-show. We have a zero-tolerance policy for that. I understand, I said. I'm sorry about this, but they wanted me to start the next day, today, and I can't give you the two weeks. My soon-to-be former boss sighs on the other end. What are you going to be doing, anyway? I am going to be a receptionist, I say. My former boss pauses. All right. What's the company? HW International? Uh, and what do they do? I stutter. They, you know, they, they do business. <laughs> and I'm their receptionist. I can practically hear him shrug on the other end. All right, well, good luck. And, you know, you're fired, technically, but... Feel free to use me as a reference. You're a good worker. We'll miss you. <laughs> I don't have much experience in office-like settings, and I've never actually met a receptionist, but the words bright, chipper, and corporately attractive spring to mind, <laughs> which was fitting when I met Kim, the receptionist I'd be replacing. Kim meets me at the coffee machine, which is located in a small alcove at the bottom of the stairs that lead up to the sales floor. She works the machine, a simple Mr. Coffee that I used to sell at the department store like a pro, dumping yesterday's grounds and filters, scooping a mound of fresh Folgers, filling the pot to the brim and pouring it into the apparatus without spilling a drop. You must make the coffee before the sales teams arrive, so get here by 7.30 every morning. I have never made coffee before, so Kim seems like a wizard mixing a caffeinated potion. I wonder if I should take notes during all this and realize that I left my bag in the car. A clear indication that being a grown-up is hard. <laughs> Kim leads me up to the sales floor, a big open room filled with a few dozen cubicles. It looks like a real workspace where real business gets done, where soon people will trade office, office gossip while sipping the coffee that I have mastered. I am a receptionist, and I'll be a damn good one. Kim and I sit behind her long desk at the, to the, at the entry to the room. 
There are two receptionists here, you and Jody. Jody comes in later, said Kim. Your most important jobs. Answer the phone in the first ring, don't transfer any calls, and process the sales orders. Wait, sorry, don't transfer any calls? I mean, if it's personal and you know the person, maybe you can, but personal calls usually go to their cells, you know? Plus, you're not going to get any personal calls here. The calls we get are different. Before I can ask another question, she's explaining how to process the sales orders. This, I can tell right away, will be the most complicated part of the job. A dance of credit card numbers, a one-two shuffle of purchase orders, a castanet of mouse clicks, with a pirouette and a spinning office chair to grab receipt forms. I am terrified. Throughout the day, I watch Kim as she embodies secretarial duties, processing, making more coffee, being chipper with every dang person who calls, keeping her workspace organized, and even flirting with the water delivery guy. At the busiest time, she calls to me and says she need th needs things, and I scramble through long file cabinets in a flurry of manila folders. It usually takes me two or three times to get the right one, and Kim shakes her head at my delays. Don't worry about those. Most of them are just former employee files, she says with a huff. At lunch, there's a lull, and I see one of the files I pulled is labeled William Corio. The name strikes me. I knew a guy in high school, a dude we called Will Oreo Corio, on account of his hair, which was half black, half bleach blonde. In the file, it says he worked for a company called International Business Marketing. It strikes me as weird, but Kim calls for another order form, and I'm back digging through paper. That night, I go out to a bar. Just so happened there were some friends from high school there. Three drinks in, and I see the unmistakable, regrettable, half-black, half-bleached blonde hair of Oreo Corio. <laughs> He's playing darts when I ask him about working for HW International. He looks at me confused. Never heard of them, man. Sorry. Oh, I say. All right. Well, they, well, they may have been called International Business Marketing. Will pauses mid-dart strike, and his eyes go wide. Dude. Yeah, I know them. Really? Well, all right, what were they like, man? Dude. <laughs> Will steps away from the game when we sit in the booth. Look, I just did IT for them, and they outsourced my gig to India, but from what I saw, they are hella sketch, not legit. Their telemarketing team made all sorts of claims that I'm 90% sure were complete bullshit. I mean, just look at the name. The name? I ask. International Business Marketing, IBM. They would call people claiming to be this entirely different company and sell them whatever. I wasn't sure about that, but yeah. Well, I'm not selling. I'm just a receptionist, like admin and coffee and whatever, dude. Hella sketch is all I'm saying. Day two. <laughs> I received my first complaint over my lack of coffee-making skills. Kim is having me do pretty much everything. The salespeople regard me suspiciously and criticize how slow I am at processing their orders. I've got a guy on the phone right now. Come on, they say, nervously tapping their fingernails on the desk. Oh, I'm sorry, let me just... It is a whole day of flop sweat and incomplete trailed off sentences. Eventually, Kim takes over. I look at the clock, only an hour before I can leave. Louise, the friendly woman who hired me, is sitting next to me. She's yawning and stretching, reviewing order forms and absentmindedly sucking at her teeth. The phone rings. HW International, I say. Are you the people who have been calling me? The man on the other end says. 
Um, this is HW International. We, we may have. Is there anything I can help you with? The man on the other end's breath grows slow and heavy. Stop calling me. Sir, you called us. Stop calling me. I've said it again and again. Ever since I sent away for that DVD, you people have been... Stop calling me, he barks. Sir, I, I apologize. Let me get your name and I'll take you off our list. I don't want to give you my name. You have my number on the caller ID. Use that. And if you don't, if I receive one more call, I will come down there. His breath is growing more and more rapid, rage-fueled and frustrated, and rape every single person in your office. <laughs> My dry mouth managed to squeeze out. <laughs> Take me off your list, he screams, and then click. I lunge for a post-it and copy the number. I'm freaking the fuck out. Louise, this guy, we gotta stop calling him. He said if we don't, he'll... I drop my voice so the other women around me don't hear. Rape everyone in the office. <laughs> Louise doesn't look up from her paperwork. Did you get his name, phone number, address, and social security? She sighs. No, he... Did you not hear me? The, the rape thing? Well, if you didn't get that information, you can't take him off the list. He's going to get called again. But Louise leans back in her chair and stretches like a cat in an afternoon sunbeam. Oh, man, 30 minutes till shift's over, huh? Ugh. Then she sees me again. Look, we get those calls sometimes. And then she shrugs, shrugs, like a gender non-specific rape threat means fuck all. There was this one time, she continues, when a guy said he'd blow up our office. Kim, remember that? The bomb threat guy? <laughs> Kim laughs and claps her hands. Yeah, he said he'd stab us first, remember? <laughs> no, it was a machete. He said he'd slit our throats. <laughs> they both laugh and laugh and laugh, and I have no idea what the fuck is going on. Day three. I'm sitting across from Louise again. She's still smiling, but this isn't friendly. It's more of a condolence smile. With the economy the way it is and the fact that we have two receptionist positions, it has been decided that it's more feasible for your position and responsibilities to be absorbed by other employees. Wait, I say. I'm fired? A more accurate term would be laid off. A huge wave of relief washes over me. I have never felt so amazingly goddamn lucky to be fired from a job. Louise hands me a check for two days' work, but I can't resist. Louise, I say, what do we do here? <laughs> Louise sighs and lays it out. Basically, people who are looking to make some extra cash click these ads that sell them a DVD for like $2.99. However, in order to get that DVD, they have to fill out this ream of information, everything, like everything, including their mother's maiden name. Companies like ours buy this information and we sell them on online courses and packages that can help them set up their home business. It's just sales. Some people make money off this. Who does? Louise shrugs. Well, we do. I head out to my car. I call my old boss, the one from my retail gig. I beg for my job back. He says he'll give me the night shift restocking shelves. I say I'll take it. It may be retail, but at least it's honest. Thank you.
Ed Farragut, everybody. You'll be hearing from him again soon enough. Do not fret on that. He's a regular, and we are happy about the fact. Next up, Anastasia Zadiak shifts the tone with her story she won't remember. Here's Anastasia. My mother's voice is shaking. The phone your dad gave me wasn't working, and none of the phones at the train station worked either. Not one. Her words come haltingly, with odd pauses, repeated syllables. And there were no taxis, so I asked this young man if he could help me call Dad. He was so nice. Dad asked him to call a taxi for me, but I wasn't near our house at all. I I don't know how I got there to that station. They never announced ours. Is Dad home with you now, Mom? I ask. No, he's not going to be home for a little while. He has a meeting at the church. Like so many conversations with my mom, this one was painful. Miles away, I pictured her in some random train station, not knowing where she is, yet realizing she isn't where she's supposed to be. Her fear rising. I see her pulling out the worn piece of paper she has tucked into her phone case, the one with her name, address, and phone numbers on it. During my last visit home when I'd questioned my dad about whether it was safe for mom to travel alone, he told her to show me the piece of paper. She was so proud that she could locate it right away. The edges were fraying. All I could think was, oh my God, she obviously has to use this often. And then, shit. Though I could still recognize it, her previously beautiful cursive handwriting was gone, replaced with almost childlike print. Another sign of loss. Before I had children, I worked in the field of geriatric psychopharmacology research, conducting clinical trials in patients with memory disorders. My brain is filled with information on neurotransmitter systems, the physiology of memory formation, tau protein, and beta amyloid. By default, when my mom started showing signs of Alzheimer's disease, I became the resident expert and bearer of bad news. I lived overseas during the early stages of my mother's illness, but on visits home, I'd hide my emotions behind an imaginary white coat and deliver whatever devastating proclamations my siblings and I had decided my father needed to hear. Mom's memory loss is not normal for her age. You need to take her to a neurologist. Mom shouldn't drive anymore. The doctor isn't wrong. Mom has Alzheimer's. Dad would sit there across from me at some restaurant or in the car out of my mother's earshot, and he'd listen as I spouted neuropsych jargon, spilled statistics, gave him books to read. A brilliant, outgoing, purposeful man, my father was loath to give up the activities that defined him as Alzheimer's took her abilities away, so he continually adapted his plans, trying to keep ahead of the disease. The train station plan was devised to allow him to give weekly tours as a docent at the Art Institute of Chicago and serve as a minister at a local church. After he put her on the train in downtown Chicago, mom was supposed to get off at the station in their suburb, walk across the street, find a taxi, give the driver her address, and pay him with the money in the pocket of her purse labeled taxi money. 
The night of that call, following years of warnings, as I listened to the next adaptation Dad had in mind for the train station plan, my own voice was shaking when I said, that's too many steps, Dad. If even one thing goes wrong, she'll get confused. She could end up getting lost or robbed or assaulted. You can't do that anymore. He was quiet for a minute, long enough that I wondered if he'd hung up. Then his voice came, soft and sad. I just want her to be with me whenever she can. I don't want her sitting home alone all the time. I understood this. During my mom's gradual but constant decline, I was gutted by images of her alone. Picking up a book, she started on page one every day for the last two months, staring at some other appliance that has turned into an enemy, longing to speak to someone but unable to remember how to dial a phone. I worried that she would open the door to someone that wished to do her ill. I worried that she would decide to make some soup and burn down the house. I worried that she would go out for a walk and wander away. I came home more often, had increasingly difficult conversations with my dad. It got harder for me to keep the imaginary white coat on. We'd start out stoic, but inevitably by the time I delivered the zinger, we'd both be crying. Mom can't be alone at home. She needs to go to daycare. You need to sell the house and consider assisted living. Mom needs to wear a safe return bracelet, Dad. She can't talk anymore and she could wander off any time. This last one happened while she and my dad were on their annual holiday in Canada, a trip my siblings and I told my father they really shouldn't be taking. Mom went out the sliding doors of their hotel room while my dad was in the bathroom. When he came out, she was nowhere in sight. Distraught, he called me 2,500 miles away to ask what to do. I stifled the words, I told you to get a bracelet for her, realizing it might not have done any good and certainly wouldn't at that point. Instead, I said, call the police. Their hotel was in a remote farming area, so the authorities employed both cars and Mounties, policemen on horseback that could navigate fields sky high with corn, wheat, or hay. When dad shared this piece of information with me, I instantly wished I could forget it. I didn't want to think about my mom, lost in a wheat field. Three long hours later, a Mountie found her huddled behind a dumpster two miles away. Dad reported she was upset, but she couldn't remember why. Can you put the phone up to her ear, I asked. I want to tell her I love her. I heard him say to her, Esther, honey, it's Stacy. Stacy, your youngest daughter. Watching someone you love disappear slowly day after day is truly awful. My dad was suffering. It took a long time for me to appreciate that as my mother was losing everything that made her her, my father was losing my mother. While she had no control over her loss, he seemed to believe that if he refused to acknowledge his, he could forestall it. But he couldn't. None of us could. When I called to tell him I was coming home several years into my mother's illness, he sighed. 
Then he said in a voice, strong and determined, you don't need to wait until you get here to tell me what's next. Just tell me now. Give it to me straight. The thing is, despite initial resistance at every stage, dad came around over and over. Alzheimer's disease forced my parents into a complete role reversal. For nearly 50 years, my mom had taken care of my dad. Now he had to put her needs first, and that wasn't easy. He'd often say, I'll never be as good at this as your mom was, and I'd respond. No one could be, Dad. She is absolutely, hands down, the most giving person I've ever known. I miss my mother. I am reminded of her when I look in a mirror. I have her eyes. I have her hands, her skin tone, her love of coffee ice cream. I am my mother's daughter. I am my mother's daughter, and so I am on the lookout for the signs. I make comparisons and judgments about my behavior, the inability to recall the name of a woman I met yesterday, the failure to instantly find my place in the novel I'm reading, the futile search for that elusive word perched just out of reach somewhere between my brain and my tongue. I wonder, is this, is this what it feels like at the beginning? Since my mom started showing signs before age 60, the likelihood she carried a genetic variant of the disease is higher. This sucks on a number of levels. Whenever we get together, my four siblings and I, I can't help but think, which of us will still know each other in 10 years? And at 51, well, shit, my days are numbered. In the thousands, but still numbered. I find myself giving my children life advice well in advance of when it will be necessary in case I'm not able to give it at some future appropriate time. I consider taking my daughter wedding dress shopping even though she doesn't have a serious boyfriend, just in case it takes years for her to find the right guy and my brain gets clogged with plaque and tangles in the meantime. I've started doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, and I practice counting backwards from 100 by sevens. I realize that I've stamped myself with an expiration date, or at least a best before date, November 2023, the year I will turn 60. If there were a definitive test for it, would you take it, my sister asked me a few years ago. At the time, I replied without thinking, yes, absolutely, for sure. But lately, when I reflect on the possibilities, I'm not so sure. If you could get a detailed report on all of the fucked up genes inside your body, the illnesses percolating, the old cells that were supposed to die that are replicating and dividing instead, would you want it? As the white-coated geneticists learn more and more about what lurks inside us, is that knowledge always helpful? When would you want to know for sure that you are losing yourself? Until recently, the conventional wisdom in the medical field has been to protect Alzheimer's patients from full knowledge of their diagnosis. In fact, there are still many doctors advocating this approach. My family certainly acceded to it. Throughout my mom's illness, which was, after all, her illness, I rarely discussed what was happening to her with her. After my mom died, my oldest sister and I helped my father sort through her things. Sitting on the small, worn love seat in their family room, I was going through a file folder of medical paperwork when I found a note in my mother's handwriting. Handwriting still so graceful, I knew it must have been written in the earliest stages of her disease. As I read it, I was suddenly, heartbreakingly aware 
that I had failed her at a time when she needed me most. It was just three sentences. Explain to the doctor, she wrote to herself, something is wrong with me and no one will talk about it. I know though, I know. I wish now that I could go back, hold her hand and ask her, what is it like, mom? Are you scared? But I can't. So I tell my children, if this disease comes for me when it comes for me, I don't want anyone protecting me with silence. Once it's here, I tell them, I want you to give it to me straight. I will know, and I'll want to talk about it with you. The silence will come soon enough. Thank you. Anastasia Zadiak. Her novel, Blurred Fates, is out now. Rounding us out on our episode and bringing us home on our Red Flags show is our very own Sociowell co-founder, a red flag of talent in his own right. Please meet Jake Arkey with his story, Crazy For You. I'm crazy for you. Have been ever since that day I walked into that San Francisco apartment and you were there. Red hair blazing in the late summer sun, goofy smile I wanted to keep on your face forever. I never thought nose rings were hot until I saw yours and damn, freckles. Love your freckles. And then there's me, new to the Bay Area with a girlfriend back in San Diego. I moved for a dream job, dream city, but now I'm thinking I moved for a dream girl. Smitten and crazy for you. It takes a little while, but we find our way. I didn't think you'd have anything to do with me after I vomited in your shoe on Halloween. <laughs> Months later, I never thought you'd come to my Christmas party or that I'd kiss you that night. New Year's Eve, a week later, I break up with my girlfriend before our first date. Never thought that would happen, but I thought wrong. Being crazy for you can make me wrong. A lot. We work together, and it's scary to tell our colleagues that we're dating, but all of them genuinely beam at you, saying the loveliest compliments about how nice it is that we're together. Then they look at me, solemnly nod their heads, give closed mouth smiles, and walk away. They aren't crazy for you like I am. I love the way you do everything. You are, in your words, a free spirit. I love how much energy you have and are always up to do something out of the blue. Like that time you got rip-roaring drunk, jumped on top of a table at a bar mitzvah party and freak danced with an eighth grade boy. <laughs> then when you were done, you looked at all the slack-jawed middle school girls and simply said, Respect yourselves, honeys. I'm so incredibly crazy for you. You are my dream girl. You are sexy, like beyond sexy. But not just that, you're spontaneous. You're, you're confident. You're weird in a cute way. 
I, I have no fashion sense. I overthink every detail of my life. I'm some dorky guy who wants to be a writer. I, I want to throw caution to the wind, but then I wonder if that's considered littering, and who am I kidding? The way my karma works, that caution will just catch an updraft, change course, and probably end up whacking me in the face. I mean, why are you with me? You're way out of my league. You're nothing like my last girlfriend, who you seem to hate with a fervor, but you've never met. You weren't like the women we passed by on the streets of San Francisco or L.A. or New York City, all of whom seem to be threatening you with their eyes and who you swear you'll make suck your fucking balls because they're all jealous bitches. Those are your words, not mine. The friend who introduced us, she isn't your friend anymore. You say that she called me adorkable, and now she's dead to you. <laughs> I think I'm gonna marry you one day. I'm telling myself that I'm crazy for you on Valentine's Day, fighting through a depressed anxiety as I overpay for a fancy dinner I know you're gonna barf up in the streets later on. I should bolt. But then again, everyone has baggage, right? Right. You have baggage, I do too. And love is about putting up with that other person's baggage, right? Right. And I'm a man, for God's sakes. I'm a real man. So I do what I know how to do best. Play the role of the self-sacrificing martyr, enduring your reign of bullshit about everything and nothing all at once. Tell me all about it. How you think everyone hates you. How you think everyone has a problem with you. How you think that I don't listen at all. And when I do listen, I listen to the wrong things. But what about me, all right? What about my problems? What about the fact that you make me hate myself? Or the fact that I've taken you to Paris on a romantic getaway, and the first interaction we have starts off with your lovely question, were you just checking out that girl? I'm sorry, what? I saw you. Everyone saw you. What do you mean everyone saw me? On the train, you were looking at her and oogling her. Who? Which woman? What are you talking about? The one you were staring at mentally undressing. Oh, jeez, I'm jet-lagged. I wasn't staring anywhere but off into space. She looked at me like, is that your boyfriend? It was embarrassing. I literally have no clue what you're talking about. Oh, I'm talking about how you were making a pass at that woman on the train and wanted to go fuck her instead of me. Crazy. For you. My God, have I mentioned that. My parents like you. My friends say they like you. You have issues with some of my family members and can't stand any of my friends. That's okay. I don't like your best friend because she lies about getting brain tumors and being raped and lures you down to a meth house in Ventura where her Jesse Pinkman of a roommate lets his girlfriend attack you. The cops come, but no police report is filed, so you say. Mary Methhead hit you in the face, but your black eye fades in just one day. It's okay. You're safe 
with me now. It's 4th of July. Bring on the frat parties, the fireworks, the barbecue, the binge drinking, the bong rips, the misunderstandings, your fear of abandonment, which ignites at an In-N-Out burger at 2 in the morning, only to bottle rocket into the night and explode right in my face, right in my face, because that's where your fist lands, right on my face. But I still let you sleep in my bed that night because I'm just depressed, (laughs) angry, convinced that this is love, putting up with this. Now, I'll admit, I'm not handling my emotional responses in an adult way. I really shouldn't have polished off that bottle of whiskey by myself and then tried making out with your friend's sister in the hot tub, but she also had red hair and wasn't telling me I was an infection on her life, so you can see why I was drawn into that circumstance. I know I'm not giving you the best of me, staying in bed for days, binge-watching Sons of Anarchy so I can feel less emasculated, which only brings out the worst in both of us, but baby, I'm crazy for you. I must be. I took you back two weeks after you cold-cocked me in the face and made you promise you'd never do it again, and you did. You promised, and you did it again. Couples therapy doesn't work. Individual therapy seems like a joke because you change up doctors every month when they give you a diagnosis that you don't like. Besides, you keep reminding me you took a psychology course in high school before you dropped out, so you can self-diagnose and uh, self-medicate on a prescription of Sudafed, cannabis, and herbal supplement vitamins. Now, our last fight is about your best friend, uh, the one in Ventura who now claims to have stage four terminal cancer and is convinced she's going to die. We fight. Jesus, we rage. Fuck me. Fuck you. Fuck the details. We're done. Crazy for you. And you, you just continue to hate me. Mostly via text messages at all hours of the night, but you won't even look at me at work. We're supposed to go to a wedding in New York over Thanksgiving. Guess we'll have to cancel those plans. I fly solo, call you up drunkenly the night of the ceremony, get your answering machine, somehow call up my dad and cry into the phone, I screwed up, I screwed up, I screwed up, and now no one loves me, and no one ever will again. That's not true, Paco. It is, it is. You're Paco. Everyone loves you. That's my dad quoting Serpico, a movie we've never watched together. (laughs) Be strong, Paco. Pass out. Wake up in my tuxedo to 10 venomous texts. Five equally perky voicemails. All from you in the span of one hour. What do I expect? But then there's this one message when I get back to California. You're crying. I'm sorry, is what you repeat. I screwed up so bad, you insist. I want to see you and make things right, you beg. I mean, same for me. I I want that too. I mean, perhaps things can work. We'd always have Paris or some other cliche to save us, right? 
It's a Friday. We talk face to face for the first time in nearly two months. Sorry. I am too. Are we still, I don't know. Well, do you still love me? I do. Why? Because I do. Sealed with a hug, but it can't be that easy. It's never that easy. I have one shoe and I'm waiting all weekend for the other one to drop out of the sky. The long lost firework from the 4th of July. Monday morning it crash lands on my doorstep. The phone rings. It's you. You're manic. You're weeping. You're at a hospital. You don't know how you got there. You keep saying you might be a danger to yourself and others. You don't have any friends. You and your best friend had a falling out and then she actually did die. You don't get along well with your family. I'm the only person who picks up the phone when you call. Your voice on the other end asking me to take you to another hospital, one where they can admit you for long-term care. You've lost weight. You're pale. Your red hair is muted. A far cry from the strands of fire that caught my eye when we first met. You spend most of the time in the emergency room crying about how you think you might have been molested as a child and how nobody believes you, but maybe you just made it up. And if I just believe you and check you into a hospital and convince the nurses that you need to be admitted for inpatient psychiatric care, then, then it all be okay. And so I do. We haven't been a couple in months and we've been at odds with each other for nearly half a year. But here I am, seven in the morning, signing papers to have you committed for 72 hours. You end up staying for 10 days. When you're released just before Christmas, two years from the night we first spent together, you say you've been diagnosed with bipolar one. Everyone at work knows something is up. I'm trying to be stoic, a boy pretending I know how to act like a man. A few days later, you say, it's just depression and anxiety, not bipolar disorder. I'm telling my friends and family what's happening. Everyone seems to be holding back the urge to say, I told you so, and I keep on wanting to ask, why didn't you? I'm lost, adrift, numbed myself to feeling anything because I honestly don't know which emotion is appropriate to have when you reveal two days later that you have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder again. Only now you say you're bipolar. Uh, you're, you're not bipolar. Oh, you're bipolar. Oh, you're not bipolar. Oh, uh, bipolar. Uh, not bipolar. Wait, well, that's Q-Fay Dunaway. You're bipolar and not bipolar all at the same time. Your words, not mine. Either way, you're still at the hospital five days a week for outpatient treatment. You're on heavy medication. You're on disability. You're convinced I think your life is trash. Maybe that's just you facing facts, I don't know. We don't talk anymore or see each other. I've got my guard up around my face and around my heart because I know, I just know that through the breakups and the breakdowns and the breakthroughs, if you asked me to come back, to go back to the way that it was, 
I probably would. Because I'm certifiably, undeniably, clinically and oh so pathetically crazy. For you. Thank you. And that's our show in two parts, attacking the theme of red flags from six angles. We're so glad you stopped by our porch and we hope you make a habit of it. Today you heard from Ed Farragut, Anastasia Zadiak, and Jake Arkey. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We'd love to have you as one of those supporting members, which can be accomplished by your going over to sosayweall.wildapricot.org. Or you can find our Patreon. We'll see you back next time with a new stable of stories from our most recent live show, Whoa Mama. Stay safe out there, y'all, and keep listening.